Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning uh, the book of Vayikra this morning. We're beginning the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus, of course, begins with a description of what? What's this book about, people? <laughs> the book starts with a description of sacrifice. Hebrew word for sacrifice is what? Korban. From the Hebrew root? Karov. Karov. Right? What is Karov? Bring near. Close. Near. Relatives. To be close. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So, Korban, to be close. Who's coming close to whom? Someone's coming close to God. What else? You're hoping to draw God close to you. So this is, why do I stay with the Hebrew? Because I don't like the word sacrifice. I don't think it does us any good to use that word. We have so much that we lay on top of the word sacrifice that I find it's completely unhelpful as a word for us, as a term. So, right, I like us to use korban because this was the intention. Whatever actually happens is not that important. The technology is not that important. I mean, it is important, right? But we're still using technologies today to achieve this. The idea was for the person who wanted to, to draw closer to the divine. And of course, the whole system, all of the technology is devoted to drawing the divine down into the Mishkan, into the tabernacle, so that the divine presence dwelled among the people. If the divine presence dwells among the people, then what? Everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. <laughs> you're going to be safe. You're going to be protected from your enemies. Nobody's going to dare to mess with you. You're going to be healthy. Your crops are going right? to... So the divine presence resting among the people was critical. So the entire system, all of those technologies are devoted to how do we draw God close and how do we draw closer to the divine the idea of sacrificing an animal was that you ate a meal with God so you gave God's waiters part of it who were the waiters? the priests you gave them part of it you gave God something to eat because it's not very nice to bring something that smells really good and is super nutritious, full of protein and wonderful things for the brain. It's not nice to bring that and eat it while God watches, right? So you, you give God, you give the priest some of it for helping. You give God some of it. What does God get? God gets the reach nichoach. God gets the amazing aroma of the meat cooking on the big outside grill. That's what God receives from the offering because they've moved on from believing God eats. Other peoples in the region still offered their gods food in terms of bringing it, bringing it into the sacred precinct and leaving it for the gods, right? Israel had moved on. They They don't no longer believe God consumed things, but 
God consumed the reach nichoach, this amazing aroma, this smell. So you offer some to God, you offer some to God's helpers, and then you fed your clan the rest, unless it's an olah, right? Unless it's an olah, because if it's an olah, what's going to happen? Right. If it's a holocaust, it's going to be completely burned. Completely. So nobody eats any part of a holocaust. Right? The Olah completely consumed in fire. So other than Olah, you're going to feed your people out of what you offer. So you're, the whole idea of sacrifice is that you're having a meal with God. That's the point. Certainly the technology that's involved with blood and the altar is important. I'm not suggesting it's not important. But the, but the real core of the idea is to eat with God so that you can come close. There are many occasions on which you might want to do that. Tell me some of the occasions where you might think to yourself, it is time for me to have lunch with God. Uh, birth of a baby. Birth of a child. A marriage, marriage, starting of the crops. Maybe even a death. Death, marriage, starting of the crops. You're planting your new crop. All the big cycles. So the the big harvest festivals already require sacrifice. The big harvest times are already sanctified. Right? Mm -hmm. Three? Yes? Which are they? Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Those are the major harvests. Those are already sacred. They already require a whole ton of sacrifices. <coughs> but in a person's private life, there might be moments where one decides, I'm get, my son and daughter, they're getting married, and I've just had my 14th child, and so... Um, I want to bring an offering. If I want to, if those are the occasions I'm bringing the offering for, what offering am I going to bring? Thanksgiving. You're going to bring a Thanksgiving offering. You're going to bring, right, an offering of greeting, shlamim, right? So you're going to bring the shlamim. So we have Ola. Do we have a marker? We have Ola and we have shlamim. What is Shlamim from? What's the root? Shalem. What is Shalem? Complete. Whole. But it's also a word we use to greet someone, right? Offering them this completion, this state of wholeness when we greet them. So you say, Shalom. You ask after somebody's shalom. You would say, how is the shalom of your mother? Mashlamcha. How, how's your shalom? Mashlamech. How's your shalom? So you ask after the shalom of somebody. So if, so that's how we greet people. So there are people who want to translate this rather than a thanksgiving offering, that the shlamim is actually a greeting to God. Yes? So out of a sense of abundance, of good things happening for me, I, I would like to greet 
God with a gift. With a gift. Okay? Because things are going really well. So, that's the Shlamim. When else, think ancient Israel, when else might you bring a sacrifice because it's time to hang out with God? When somebody is sick or there's some uncertainty. So when we're uncertain, when things don't look so good. Right? If somebody's sick, if things are not going so well, you got to think like an ancient Israelite, what might have happened? What what's causing things to not go so well? Battles, Those are results. God being angry at you. Why would God be angry at me? Because I transgressed. I did something wrong. In which case, what do I need to do? I need to bring a chatat from the word chet. Chet is sin. What is the word from chet? The actual word chet. It's from archery. Target. To miss the mark. Chet is what happens when you let the arrow fly and it misses. That's chet from archery. So when some, I've done something wrong or I suspect I might have done something wrong that I didn't even know about, then I need to bring a chatat. I need to bring a sin offering. Yeah? Okay. So these are the main categories of offerings. So which one in the Catholic Church, which one of these is what they do in the Catholic Church with the bread and the wine and the sensor with the smell, all of them? I, I don't think, yeah, it's, it's not a, a it's not one. I, I think it's the concept. Of offering. Right, of offering. Of communion. Yes, that, you know, that Jesus is the offering. Jesus is the... It is the offering. Jesus is the offering. Right? Every time you take communion, you are having this meal with God in the Catholic Church. Because Jesus remains the offering. Constantly. When you participate, that offering works for you. But you have to participate, right? right? You have to drink, you have to drink and eat of the sacrifice. And sniff. That, because that's how it goes, right? That's, that's what you do. There's no point otherwise, right? If you don't yeah. participate, why would you bring, like, the sacrifice? All right, so, um, so it remains, right? We, of course, left it after the destruction of the temple. In, in, uh, <coughs> uh, Ancient Israel, where a lot of synagogues, at periods where synagogues were maybe five, six, eight hundred years ago, uh, uh, they had incense burners that people made, whether it was for aroma or, or maybe a mini sacrifice. I wonder. Yeah, we, we you know we have remnants of lots of those rituals, right? And those rituals were in the temple. Those rituals were were part of the temple. So it wouldn't make sense for it to be part of the temple service if it wasn't already something the people were attached to. Right? right? It would not have become part of the temple rite. It wouldn't have been part of the cult if people weren't attached to it. Uh, When you started the conversation and you talked about intimacy with God, Mm -hmm. it reminded me of what I thought was the opposite 
which was when I was a kid, I did a paper on the Incas uh -huh. who did sacrifice, but their sacrifice was uh, to placate God for, you know, whatever they were fearing would happen to them if they didn't make, and they, of course, used human sacrifice. So I thought, gee, how different, you know, how different that we were looking for intimacy, relationship with God, rather than having God far off who needs to be placated. It's almost like a bribe. I'm not yeah. so but, sure. But when you... There is that much difference yeah, right, right. between... I might have messed something up. Right. No, when you moved on. And, <laughs> right, and it's all propitiating the God who you can't have a conversation with. Right? If I don't know, all I can do is work with the technology that I have and give it my best shot. Right? That's all we can do. And there is anxiety about whether or not the gift will be accepted. Enough. Will it be enough? That is part of the anxiety built into the system. Um, it still is. And what gets in the way of God's presence and God's closeness? What gets in the way? What stops it? What prevents it? From being successful, you mean? From God being close. Us messing up. Up messing, us messing up. Sin. Sin leaves a contamination that rebuffs the divine presence. The divine presence cannot be where sin is. It can't. It's not want to, likes it, doesn't like it. It can't. Holiness cannot exist in the same space as the dross of sin. It cannot. That's just reality, according to ancient Israel. So we have to make sure the space where the divine is supposed to dwell is cleansed constantly of sin, the dross of sin. And the only thing that will do that, the only thing that will affect it enough is blood. Yes? The life force. The life force is the only thing that is a strong enough detergent to wash away the dross of sin. Okay, this is the connection in Christianity, sacrifice and sin. Okay, we had it too. But we went, but it was, it was taken in a much different direction by Christianity. There is a relationship in ancient Israel between a certain kind of sacrifice and sin. The idea in general that sin prevents the divine presence was a constant concern of the people. And so all of these rituals are about keeping that space pure the space of the Mishkan and the camp so that the divine presence could dwell among the people. Okay, That's what all of this is about. That's what all of this uh, is concerned with. If we didn't have this though and there was no way to right or wrong that would be horrible. I mean part of this I think is also the need of human beings to realize that something bad has happened and to have a way to fix it. Part of this is also that? The whole thing is that. That's the whole thing. That's the whole point. It, I'm saying it's about us. Yeah, of course. Fixing it. Of course. God doesn't need this. Of course. Yeah. Yes. We made this up. <laughs> we made this up because we needed it. Human beings make up religion because they need it. 
We make, uh, we, or we practice stuff and, oh, that worked, <laughs> right? I meditate, oh, wow, I feel closer to the divine. Okay, I'm gonna do that again, right? So some things are by testing it. Other things are by we need it. It makes us feel better, makes us feel grounded, makes us feel fill in the blank. And that is how the entire system comes to be. And once it doesn't work for us anymore to do all those things, now it's prayer. All right. All right. So I hand. Was it you, Sheldon? Well, I was going to say, what, what's replaced sacrifice? So prayer. Prayer. And I, I assume after the temple was destroyed, there was no sacrifice. Correct. Once the temple's destroyed, the Jews are carried off. You can't do a sacrifice just anywhere anymore. You could before this, right? Noah does it the minute he gets off the boat, right? So you used to could, but then once you have centralized worship in Jerusalem, they were very good at what they did, those politicians. They centralized worship in Jerusalem. Now you can't sacrifice anywhere else, right? Um, some of us saw a rival you know, situation in the north when we went to Israel, yes? Okay, so... Um, but Jerusalem, if you're going to have worship there and that's the only place you can sacrifice, then what are you going to do when you don't have Jerusalem anymore? You're in trouble. Well, you, <laughs> you rely on rabbis. Thank you, Sheldon, for that beautiful transition. The prayer was designed to mirror what happened in the sacrifice. Once the temple's destroyed... Now prayer happens at the same time that you would have had sacrifices happening in the temple. Prayer replaces sacrifice. Okay. Very good. And it's terrific that the, the, the core word for sacrifice means to be close. Yes. Which is the, there, yeah. That's the only word. <laughs> right, right. That's the term. Korban. That which makes close. me karov. Close. Exactly. Is there any reference to prayer? I'm just sort of thinking because all the references are the sacrifice to appease. Prayer only start after this. No, we have some in the Bible, um, but but sacrifice was the main yeah. technology. Um, there is some uh, in the temple. We know that the Levites stood on the steps and offered psalms, um, and there was a. Um, Psalm 150 names all the instruments that were used. Praise God with timbrel, praise God with horn, praise God with whatever. So we know that there were ancient um, orchestras, essentially. Um, and so definitely there's a part in Torah where we see my father was a wandering Aramean. Do you remember that? This person's supposed to take the basket of first fruits, bring it to the priest, and has this whole thing he's supposed to say. My father was a wandering Aramean and went down to Egypt, blah, 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 blah. Where do we see this? How do we know this? Why is this familiar? Seder. Seder. Okay. So, so that is one, one ritual involving words that we have left um, from Torah, um, but we don't see it very often. But um, Chana also is referenced as praying, mm-hmm. um, and Ellie, the priest, thinks she's drunk. Um, so I mean, so so we have evidence that it existed, but it was it was not the main technology. And this lasted until the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Till 70 of the common era. 70, yeah. 70, 70 CE. <laughs> the Musaf service, that takes the place of this section. Correct. 
takes, <coughs> takes the place of one sacrifice, right. the additional sacrifice. Right. Right. So, so the brilliance of Christianity was to disseminate it and allow it to happen all over the world. Yes, yes. The brilliance of Christianity was that it took what was centralized in Jerusalem and made it accessible everywhere and for all time. And rabbinic Judaism did the same thing. The brilliance of what Christianity did with sacrifice. (laughs) With sacrifice, right? So, yes, I mean, it made it accessible to all and made it timeless, right? So you didn't need a temple, right, because it's cosmic, right? Jesus is the cosmic sacrifice. Correct. And so that sacrifice, the the mass, right, is celebrating the, the... person's participation in that sacrifice that happens eternally. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've often said, you know, there are days where I really wish, right, I really wish. I do. Um. The power of this, too, was the sensual involvement. It was very human and sensual, the sight and smell and sound, all of it. And that's what's one of the things that I think is very appealing in the Catholic Church, the sensuality. Smells and bells. Yeah, it's fabulous, as opposed to the Protestant churches, which are stark in many cases and don't have any of that. Right, right. And I I feel like we we lost a lot of that. Yes. We lost a lot of that. And it's a really, for some of us, it's a really sad thing that we don't get it anymore, right? That there are no smells and bells for us anymore. Except the bells on the Havdalah. We do have Havdalah. We have a little clove. Well, yeah, it's part of the civilization, if not part of the synagogue. But definitely part of the civilization of Jesus. Sure. But sure. if we're supposed to struggle, that's our struggle. Oh, good. Okay, it's about struggle. Great. Leave it to a Jew to answer the question. Oh, but it's about struggle. It's good for us. That's what we do as a people. It's gr- we grow from it. Right. So. We have a lot of food. We have a lot of food. All right, so guess what? I did all of that, and we're not going to look at the sacrifices. We're going to play... We're going to play in another sandbox. Okay. Because we read the beginning of Leviticus, I introduced you to what we're going to be looking at for a while. But we read something else this Shabbat. Because this is the Shabbat before what holiday? Purim. Before Purim. Who's the main dude, evil guy in our story? We're the grotters. Is everyone coming on Wednesday to our forum? Fiddler on the loose. All right, so. Are you coming? Haman. Haman, according to the rabbinic tradition, is a descendant of. So, on the Shabbat before Purim, we read, this is actually called Shabbat Zachor. What is this core from the Shoresh Zayn Kavresh? Remember. Remember. Ooh, he points for the center here tonight. Yeah. 
This is my bar mitzvah portion. This is what? This is my bar mitzvah. It's about to start. This is your bar mitzvah? Ten years ago. Long time ago. Ten years ago. Wow. Absolutely. Just shared. Yeah. This morning. Zachor. Parshat Zachor. I remembered. I mean, Shabbat Zachor. You remember it. All right. Zachor. Remember. All right. So this is this is Shabbat Zachor. This is the Shabbat where we read this text out of order. We're going to read it in order where it belongs, right, in our in our lectionary when we get to Deuteronomy. But we we read it again. We take this hunk and read it again on the Shabbat before Purim. All right. So because you liked the last one I did with you, I brought you another one from IJS. Yeah, the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. Uh, this Torah commentary is by Rabbi Mark Margolius. Do I have my copy? Yes. And so he says, this week we begin a new book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra, which we just talked about, the first portion of which falls this year on Shabbat Zachor, the Shabbat before Purim, the Maftir. So this is the last reading on Shabbat Zachor. So if we had a Torah reading tomorrow morning, the Maftir would be this that he's talking about. The Maftir is the last, the last reader, the last thing. And it describes Amalek's attack on the Israelites after they crossed the Reed Sea. We read this passage just before Purim because Jewish tradition understands Haman, the anti-hero of the Megillah, as descended from Amalek, the Jewish prototype for evil. The passage we read um, represents one of the Torah's great paradoxes. Oh, I didn't have my mic on. <laughs> one of the... Um, Torah's great paradoxical teachings. In it, Moses admonishes the people and all future generations to remember and simultaneously eradicate the memory of Amalek. All right, Bert, you want to read? Remember what Amalek did to you when you were leaving Egypt, how he happened upon you by the way and struck those of you who were stragglers when you were tired and exhausted, and he did not revere God. When Yudhei your God, gives you respite from all of your enemies around you, in the land which Yudhei your God gives you, wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. Okay. So remember, Zachor, what Amalek did when you were leaving Egypt. What happened? Amalek struck you from behind. Right? That is not polite. <laughs> that is not a nice way to make war. Is to come up behind and attack the most vulnerable. Right? That's just cheating. So, and you're going to cut down the, peop- the very people who would not be fighting. Mm-hmm. Right? The elderly, pregnant women, children. You know, you're, you're, you're going to strike at the folks who are not carrying weapons and they're not going to be fighters. <coughs> and God, when, and so th- that happened. That was terrible. When God gives you respite from your enemies in the land that God right, has promised you, wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Don't forget. <laughs> forget Amalek. Blot their name out from under the heavens. Don't forget. (laughs) So that's interesting, right? Like, so even Torah has to know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Why use the word zachor, remember, and then you're going to say, remember to forget. 
Mary? In, now I'm thinking about Westerns. Okay, so... Westerns, being, like movies? Well, yeah, the Western um, mythology or history okay. or whatever. Okay. Being shot in the back is considered the lowest of the low, of cowardice. Okay? Now, before I heard this, I would never make the association between being shot in the back and Amalek. So This is why you come to Torah study, Mary. Yeah, but so in my mind, I have forgotten or never known about Amalek, but I know that being shot in the back is the lowest of the low. So, I mean, you could wipe out memory, but you could remember that this is a bad thing to do. Okay, so blot out the memory, but remember what happened. Right. Okay, that makes so much more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Moshe, yeah, Sarah? That's why Jews are historians, because... Because memories are very important, but you have to evaluate them. Ah, memories are important, but one must evaluate them. So how do we evaluate them? What are the criteria? We, we can look at current dictators and remember what Hitler was like. So it gives us a measure So memory gives us a yardstick by which to measure what's happening now or what may happen in the future, right? So memory is critical. We know this, right? We know this. Every culture knows this. History is critical. Now, how they deal with history, that's another, right? That's another subject, but history is critical. So Zahor, remember to blot out Amalek, to blot out that name, to blot out the entire business. Right? It, it absolutely is paradoxical. It absolutely makes no sense. But we're going to make some sense of it. Okay. Uh, it, it does make some sense. All right, we're going to go there. We're going we're to go to how it might make sense. All right. Moshe refers here to an incident in Exodus 17 in which Amalek attacks the newly freed Israelites. In that battle, Moses, assisted by Aaron and Hor, uh, leads the Israelites to victory, following which God offers this enigmatic injunction. God said to Moshe, write this as a remembrance in the book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, so... What was, um, if it was not clear in Deuteronomy, it is very clear, right, in uh, Exodus that God is going to do this. God is going to blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Right. So we're putting it in the Torah. Hmm? By putting it in the Torah. (laughs) Right. Right. We write it in the Torah. We're going to read it so that we can forget it. Okay. Let's look at where... Rabbi Margolius is going to go. In the Exodus account of the Amalek incident, God vows to eradicate the memory of Amalek. In the Deuteronomic version, Moshe charges the Israelites with that role. For much of Jewish history, Amalek has stood as an archetype of evil associated with external enemies of the Jewish people. 
In the mystical stream of Jewish tradition, Amalek has also been associated with an internal process present within every human being. For the Hasidic master Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, here's a quote from Levi Yitzchak, not only are the children of Israel commanded to blot out the external Amalek, but also every individual Jew must blot out that evil part called Amalek, which is hidden in his heart. As long as the seed of Amalek is in the world, since a person is a miniature world, Amalek exists in the evil potential within the person, which awakens anew again and again to cause him to sin. So we saw this brilliant move with Bo El Paro, come unto Pharaoh, right? Don't think Pharaoh is out there. There is just as much a root in here to, right, Amalek. Amalek is that which arises within every human being and tempts them to sin, to bad behavior. We each have an inner Amalek at the end of that next paragraph. We each have an inner Amalek, a mean streak, a tendency to pick on the vulnerability in others and ourselves. The Torah here cautions us to be vigilant about our shadow, to redirect its energy towards the light. So that this is an ongoing process for, for the Jewish mystical tradition. This is happening all the time. If Amalek is in the world and each of us is a world, and that's what, that's what we believe, that each of us is a reflection, right? A, a microcosm of the world. Then Amalek must be in here. And Amalek is constantly attacking from behind. Constantly attacking where we're vulnerable. Constantly attacking where we don't see it coming, right? Where we're weakest, right? So I don't know about you, but when I'm tired, hungry, sick maybe, um, right? Angry, those are the times. Those are the times the little Amalek can come out, right? And sometimes the little Amalek is not so little, right? Sometimes it's a full-on temper tantrum, right? Um, but And sometimes it truly is the worst of who we can be, right? The worst. And the smarter we are, the more accomplished we are, right? The more talented we are, the meaner we can be. We can be. You can slice someone pretty well if you're smart and if you know how to speak. If you know how to get to people's kishkas, you can also rip them out. This is the brilliance of our spiritual tradition that says, don't look out there. Right? It, it starts here. That is not to make us ashamed. That is not to make us feel badly about ourselves. That is just to tell the truth. That's all. But fortunately, we are given technologies to help us, say the rabbis. Torah is a gift. Torah is a prescription for human beings who are afflicted with the disease of an inner Amalek. And guess what? If you're human in this reality, you have been afflicted with that situation. And you are given Torah to correct that or to address that situation. It's going to be chronic, right? You're not going to get rid of the inner Amalek. It's about how do I live with it and minimize its impact on my health, 
on my spiritual health, on the health of my relationships, on the health of my community, ha- my relationship to myself, right? Because we, we can be the meanest to ourselves. We say things to ourselves we would never, never say to somebody we loved or even didn't like. Right. Our meanness to others is because of our meanness. Oh, and there we go. Right. And often, what I'm going to say to somebody else really comes out of being aware that that is my situation, my reality, my weakness, my proclivity. And right, it is really easy, right, to get triggered when someone else does the very stuff that I hate about myself. Because we recognize it. Because we recognize it. Yeah, but you know, I'm a like. Uh in spades in our society, the right and the left, they have for each other. Just as every human being is a microcosm of the world, so is the society we create. You're absolutely right. So right now, what I hear you referencing is the Amalek that is running rampant through the American civic conversation, or shall I say, the American civic temper tantrum. Right? And vitriol that we are throwing at one another. And it just keeps playing broader. Europe. Yes. Brexit. Yes. And all around Israel. The world is There's always going to be Amalek, right? So we must begin with our own addressing of our own Amalek because then that's the only way we can impact whether or not as a society we are doing that. And then, as a world community, are we doing that, right? We have to start with all that we can really ever control, which is our own relationship to that. So turn to page three. (coughs) Remember what we just said. Remember what Levi Yitzchak said, is that we are trying to take Amalek and turn it to the light. Right? We're not going to eradicate it, but we can use it, says our tradition. In other words, that paragraph, second paragraph, see that paragraph, in other words? All right, drop down to the middle of that paragraph, each human error. <coughs> each human error or missing of the mark flows out of a sacred impulse distorted by exaggerated, self-centered fear. We must remember our inner Amalek in order to sweeten it so its energy may redirect towards redemptive ends. This is why I think our tradition does not use a word that derives from sin or bad. Our word, even as far back as Torah, our word is chet, missing the mark. When you're aiming in archery, you're not aiming to miss. Right. What are you aiming at? You're aiming for the right place. You're aiming for the bullseye. The chet is that you aim and you think you're spot on and you're going you're gonna to be true and you're not. Something's wrong. I didn't hold the thing right. I didn't have the right tension on it. I wasn't looking in the right place. I moved once I released it. So what, whatever it is, something went wrong. But my intention right, was good. This is the derivative, this is the word, our word for, this is the concept, our word from sin derives from even as far back as the Bible. Or you could be aiming at the wrong target. (laughs) Don't complicate things right now. So, 
the inner Amalek, right, is about how do we take that, that, that missing the mark is about, is about an impulse that's been distorted. Something went wrong. <coughs> what went wrong? Our teacher is saying often it is by exaggerated, self-centered fear that our energy gets knocked off, right? And we do something hurtful, something wrong. We do something mean. As I've noted previously in this series, this requires our willingness to identify and admit to our own inner Amalek that which Jung famously described as our shadow. There is, here, and this is Jung, there is no light without shadow and no psychic wholeness without imperfection. To round itself out, life calls not for perfection, but for completeness. And for this, the thorn in the flesh is needed. The suffering of defects without which there is no progress and no ascent. Why? Why do we need suffering and defects? That's where you learn. How come we can't learn without them? I don't, I, I and we be perfect. <laughs> and what's wrong with perfect? Be nothing to learn. It's not human. It's not human. <coughs> Isn't that what the Garden of Eden was all about? It's not progressive. God could have made us perfect. You always we have made in the mistakes. image of God. So I hear a lot about learning. Okay, but why not be perfect? Then you don't need to learn. But if we are made in the image of God, we have God is also this way. Okay. Learning gives us empathy with people who also are not perfect. Ah. But what if we were all perfect? Then, then we wouldn't have to have too. I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I think it's about choice. That we do have choice. Without, if we were perfect, there would be no choice involved in any of this. We would just be perfect. We'd never hurt anybody. So why would I have to do any of this? There'd be no reflection. If I didn't have to do this, then I'm not choosing to be good. I'm not choosing to be kind. I'm just kind because I'm perfect. And, and I'm not ever unkind. And so, yay. But... But that's not the world that God is interested in, says our tradition. God is interested in choice. This is why God plunked a tree down in the middle of perfection and said, don't. Now choose. Choose. We have to choose every day. We have to choose every conversation. We have to choose every thought, every moment. It's exhausting. Isn't it? This being human business. Because we have to choose all the time. Thank God I don't have to legislate. (laughs) Right? And choose that stuff. But like, we have to choose all the time. But that's the work. That's the glory. That's where the real credit comes in. Is that we choose to do it. We choose to lean in. We choose to be here every Friday. Because we're trying Sometimes more trying than others. Sometimes more trying than others. I am sometimes more trying than... Right. So, right. But that's, that's what I think is at the center of why it has to be flawed. Because otherwise, we, what's the credit for doing it? Nothing. You wouldn't do anything because you're perfect. You'd never mess up. All right. So, so this is the opportunity of Amalek. 
Amalek gives us the choice to either follow it or to say, Mm-mm, I'm going to I'm going to try to turn it. That is bechirad. That is choice. Absolutely. In terms which truly speak to our day, Jung observes that remembering our Amalek, right? This is what the Torah says, remember Amalek, requires surrendering our instinct to project our shadow onto others. Ooh, I hate that. (laughs) Surrender my instinct to... to Right? I have to surrender my instinct to project my shadow onto everybody else. That bossy, arrogant, mouthy, opinionated woman that comes to our meeting. Right? Isn't that our instinct? Right? We want, we so want to project, right, onto someone else what is our shadow. Um, To begin by admitting that it is an inescapable presence within ourselves. That's the only way we can surrender that instinct is to say, okay, it's here. I recognize it. One who is brave enough to withdraw all projections, says Jung, is an individual who is conscious of a pretty thick shadow. Such a one is saddled with new problems and conflicts because that person has become a serious problem to himself. Unable to say that they do this or that, that they are wrong and they must be fought against, such a person knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in themselves. And if one only learns to deal with one's shadow, one has done something real for the world. That person has succeeded in shouldering at least an infinitesimal part of the gigantic, unsolved social problems of our day. Ain't that the truth (laughs) because someone who's able to do this is someone who has to have developed (coughs) moral courage spiritual maturity responsibility and those are muscles that are very difficult to develop but once one does one is able to lift and shoulder a tiny infinitesimal part of the gigantic unsolved social problems of our day. And only people who have done that work can shoulder any part of that load, right? You agree? uses dreams of course. to access the shadow. Of, of course, because you can't just get there from analytical, no, it's not straight thinking. I mean, that, you know, that gets us some places, but it doesn't get us right. other places. And it certainly doesn't get us where the shadow lives, right? Yes. I mean, it seems so clear today that I've heard the phrase that character is how you behave when no one else is watching. And we see what's going on with the college bribes, otherwise upstanding people in the community. The Amalek is roaring, and no one was watching. <clears throat> well, and how much how much Amalek do we tolerate? Right. Apparently a lot. Apparently a lot. I don't know about y'all, but I wasn't shocked. Not shy, just disappointed. You know, I'm like, well, of course. People with money buy their way into college, duh. Yeah. Like, you know, like, and that's a sad statement. That it's like. The people who took the bribe were were watching. I mean, you know, like, 
There, yeah. The or biblical... They acted that way because they thought that they could maintain their status uh, in society. Oh, you mean like the, that no or one would find was, out? That's right. 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 The guilty right. feelings are from getting caught, not from doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's right. the sad part. That's right. <coughs> Although David seems to be suggesting that they knew... I mean, they didn't want people to know yeah, because they, they knew it would Everybody does it would look bad. Absolutely. All right, drop down to the next to the paragraph that starts the biblical scholar. The biblical scholar Nahum Sarna observes that the Hebrew root zahar connotes much more than the recall of things past. It means rather to be mindful to pay heed, signifying a sharp focusing of attention upon someone or something. It embraces concern and involvement and is active, not passive, so that it eventuates in action. Zahor is not a mental exercise. Zahor involves things, right, that are about being mindful, paying heed, (laughs) focusing attention in such a way that it will impact action. So it is not just a lovely thing that I remember, like as some interior experience that has no impact on anything. Drop all the way down. So how can we remember Amalek in order to obliterate the memory of Amalek? How can we remember in order to forget? By bringing kind attention to our Yetzer Hara our inclination to cling or to dominate, both of which arise from excessive desire or fear. These thoughts and feelings tangle us up and lead us to stumble repeatedly. The Priha'aretz advises us to untangle ourselves by remembering to bring our Amalek, our Yetzer Hara, arising from engagement in the world of differentiation in his terms, yesh, that which exists, to ayin, that which is nothing. Consciousness of non-differentiation and non-judgment. The Priha'aretz teaches that our inner Amalek is like wax, which melts before fire. So the wicked shall perish before God, says Psalm 68, which is the ein sof. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. We have yesh and we have ayin. What is yesh? Isness. What's ayin? Nothing. Right? The world was created yesh ma'ayin. So say, right, the rabbis. Yesh ma'ayin. All right, so. The world of yesh, isness. The world of ayin, nothing. What is the work of zahor? What is the activity of zahor? To bring things from the world of yesh, which the Hasidic tradition tells us is about differentiation. That's what we do. I'm wearing a purple shirt. He's wearing a red sweater. I have long hair. He has short hair. We, this is what we do. This is how we define reality. This is how we work, because that's who we are. That's how right, we as human beings perceive the world. It is through differentiation. How do I know I'm me? I know I'm me because I'm not you. Right? And it's really scary to right, go too far down the road of non-differentiation, right? But of course, that's, that's our yearning also. Right? Okay. So, 
Yesh, isness, differentiation, specifics, separations. Ayin, nothing. So what, what, what's over and against differentiation? Unity. Same. Unity. Right? Undifferentiated reality. The work of Zahor, says the pre Haaretz, is to move the Yetzer Hara and everything that comes up from it from this to this. From Yesh to Ayin. It becomes like wax before the fire. What is the fire? Hmm? Yes, thank you. Ain't so. Also known as the great nothing. God. God is the ain't so. We are to move things from here from the, the origin of Amalek, right? Zahor is the activity of paying mindful attention with an intention to change that that is arising through undifferentiating it in the light of the Ein Sof. Right? It becomes wax that has a shape as a, of a candle. I don't know about y'all, but when I was young, I just l- was obsessed. You know, with, remember that candle store? I don't remember what that candle store was when we were growing up, but in the mall, they had them everywhere. And like the candles that like they would make into all kinds of fruit and animals, right? I had a whole collection because it was so cool, but always if you lit them, <laughs> right? So I never lit them which was just so, right? It's just, we're so weird. So, so, but that's the idea, right? That you take this, this animal that is carefully, very carefully constructed and it took hours and hours of somebody working in wax, right? And the idea is you light it with our intention. We light it. And when we light it, that wax becomes undifferentiated, it melts and becomes undifferentiated. Ein Sof is the fire, right? Ein Sof, that's what melts the wax. The absolute nothing. That's the movement. That's the movement of Zahor. That's what Zahor affects. So, uh, in childhood, for example, under two years old, you're more like, I mean, the sameness is the mom, and then to use that metaphor what I would say is it's not to move back towards unity rather one can't do this until one is yesh. A toddler can't do it. Right. An 18-month-old can't do this. Right? So, no, we don't want to go back. Yeah. We don't want to go back to that because we have to execute zahor. We through our differentiated 
mind mm -hmm. and intention and experience and identity and proclivities and weaknesses and challenges and then to br and then evolve and bring it forward to okay. Ain Sof. Does a toddler have a taste of what we're trying to achieve? Yes. Right? They're closer in some ways sure. to what we're all trying to, to, in that sense, get back to, right? Which is a sense of unity, but, but I would argue that it's not backward, you know, right. it's, it, not, it's not linear because one has to have gone through, one has to have the capacity for Zahor which is an activity of mind, heart, spirit, intention, and one can't do that until one lives in the world of yesh. The, the, the Ein Sof is so much more profound because of the, the ubiquity of the yesh. Say more. Yes. The, the, it, it, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a shallow concept in, 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 until you, unless you... Unless you be, in, 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 but, but because the yesh is so strong... Uh, Reaching that level of nirvana is so much more beautiful and powerful and, and profound and difficult. And yesh is what we raise up usually, right? Because it is profound, right? Think of Shakespeare. Think of, you know, physics. Think of, you know, putting a rocket in space. Like, that. yesh is amazing. It's amazing, and the more amazing yesh is, the more access we have to yesh because we are developed, right, intellectually, the more gorgeous and the more we can appreciate Ein Sof when we get a tiny little taste of it. Because right. they are tiny, as we said, I don't know what class we were in, flashes, that's all we get. Right, kind of a flash of right, and and we live our lives in the shadow, right, of those flashes, because um, it's so hard to get there. Right. And and I think you're absolutely right. The more in yesh we are, sometimes the harder it is to get there. Um, but also, the more we really do appreciate Ein Sof. I, I think that's absolutely true. I'm having trouble hearing you because I am congested. You raised the young now of Yeish Tov. So if you're a, a Shakespeare, a Beethoven, a whoever, it's not bad to have that sort of differentiation. It's when the Yeater Ra becomes more powerful, overrides that Yeater Tov, you become the dark side. And if the I'm so is a fire, the fire gives off light, the light creates awareness, awareness creates growth. Okay. Is differentiation and judgment, are they the same thing? No. Good. <laughs> Glad to hear you say that. I had a 50-50 shot at being right. <laughs> the movement to, to the great nothingness, is that what we refer to as the movement toward more humanity or to recognizing others as ourselves? I mean, is that like the movement to world peace? Yeah. Yes. 
It's the movement towards recognizing, right, that I need to treat someone else the way I, right, you know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds like duh, but it's like, it's really hard for us to get there. It's really, really, really hard because we've had really painful experiences because we are human and we live in a really crazy reality. But if that's the goal, that we're all the same. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. What is the goal? The goal is to take the Yetzer Hara. I hate her. That's what we're trying to move along this continuum. We're glad that there's differentiation. There should be. We live in the world of Yesh. The problem is we have pretty nasty and gnarly stuff here too. When Amalek comes up, when the Yetzer Hara comes up, how do we deal with that, right? It's to move that along this continuum. I don't hate her. I hate that part of me. And she reminds me of that part of me that I can't stand. So I get triggered by her. My work is to identify that. That's Zahor. Zahor is be mindful, Amy, of what's happening right now. Amalek is rearing its ugly little head, right? And you have some choices. You can continue to react to her and blame her for everything that's going wrong, or you can say, hmm, wow, that really, she really triggered something. I I wonder what's going on with that. Can I take a breath? Can I stop? Can I lean in, right, and move towards my desire to eradicate that reaction? So now I can respond to her appropriately. It doesn't mean I'm not going to argue with her because I still hate what she said. <laughs> She's still wrong, right? But, but <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? So that, but now I'm able to respond. I'm not coming out of Amalek and I'm not going to be mean. I think that somehow should be in the list because in one reading of just those words, you could go, uh, you know, the middle part is the melting part of the United States as opposed to um, multi Identification. All right, the point of the whole chart is, is, is to deal yeah, with Amalek. We don't need to deal with Shakespeare, we, right? We don't need to deal with music appreciation. That, that's perfectly lovely, right? What we have to deal with, our challenge is to deal, our command is Zachor et Amalek. So the, the tradition is unpacking what does that mean? Zachor. Use, use this movement. That's what Zahor is, mindful, respectful, intentional attention when Amalek happens so that we can eradicate the damage that Amalek does in the world. Maybe that's a problem. Again, for my, I would like to see non-Amalek now. You have it on the right. I would like to see that on the left because of my simple mind. Blot out Amalek. So it makes sense to remember to forget. Yes. Thank you. Blot out the name of Amalek. To do that, you have to Zahor. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. You have to remember in order to forget.
Maybe the problem is the word nothing. It seems, you know, that's really not what you said. Well, then we need to sit with that maybe a little bit. <laughs> Let's just finish this because i got to let you go. In this week, leading to Shabbat Zachor, we bring attention to those moments throughout the day when our inner Amalek is active in our mind, emotions, and body. When we are unintentionally cruel to those we love and care about, including ourselves. When we seek out and take advantage of ours or others' vulnerabilities. These moments of awareness can make us cringe and desire to flee. Rather than berate ourselves for the presence of such painful instincts, we recognize even, excuse me, even these as containing holy sparks waiting to be redeemed. If we are willing to face and even embrace our shadow. In a time of widespread demonization of the other, may we use the sacred season to explore with compassion our own inner demons. May we remember and not flinch from the Amalek within us. May we befriend our shadow and drain its toxicity. In so doing, may we free the energy within our shadows and rooted in compassion for all beings, confront and defeat the real presence of Amalek in this world. May we protect the sanctity of every human life and work towards a world of tzedek v'shalom, justice and peace, wiping out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens without succumbing to the Amalek within us. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.